Hey, what's up, everyone? My name is Joshua. I want to welcome you to another broadcast. Today, on a conversation with Joshua T. Berglund, we have a really amazing human being that's going to be calling in. His name is Cyrus, and he has been locked up for a very long time in MSOP. And if you're not familiar with MSOP, you've heard us talk about <laughs> the sex offender program and civil commitment over the last year. We've had several different broadcasts with family members. Of course, we published some of the blogs from some of the loved ones who, some of their loved ones are locked up in these shadow prisons. And today we're going to be broadcasting from MSOP in Moose Lake, Minnesota, and talking to a gentleman. He's not an attorney, but from my understanding, he has all the qualifications to be an attorney. And I think he's in his 70s now. He's a really pleasant, awesome guy. I've had several conversations with him. He's very interesting. And I don't know, like I just have a love for him. And uh, last night he called me ahead of this interview and he, uh, he shared with me some things that I'm going to let him share with you that are pretty heavy and hard to digest, but nonetheless, his story deserves and needs to be heard because I believe that it impacts a lot of people. Now, today I'm wearing a shirt in support of End MSOP, and you can check out their Facebook group at facebook.com slash End MSOP. I hope that's what it says. <laughs> but uh, I'm wearing this shirt today because this is a not only to show support to all of the the people that are locked up in these shadow prisons and specifically MSOP. But my heart goes out to everyone that's locked up in these facilities all over the country. And man, I, I got to tell you, I don't like, I love doing really exciting and passionate and fiery broadcast, but sometimes I can't do that. I believe what, we are dealing with these shadow prisons and civil commitment here is horrific. But anyway, we're going to hear from Cyrus today. Here we go. This is a free call. <laughs> That's him. <laughs> I recorded. Your call will now be second. Thank you for using now. Cyrus, the only, I'm, the only reason why I ever know it's you is because you don't say your name. <laughs> oh. Man, I'm rocking my end MSOP sweatshirt. So when you see Daniel and them, tell them I have it on. I love it. And I just got it in the mail today. Yeah. Oh, it's comfy. It's nice. And uh, as I was telling the audience before you called, I stand with you guys. My, I stand with you, your families and loved ones. And I'm really blessed and honored to have you here today, man. As we talked about before, I just want to give you the floor. And as I feel led, I'll ask questions, but I want you to share what's on your heart, sir. Sometimes I go, um, that I would uh, discuss a little bit about in order. It was coined by a professor uh, where sort of a risk of becoming a preventive state, you might say, in which there's a paradigm of governmental social and defining of their liberty. And that's what's uh, been really quite troubling from a, a standpoint of American law, because this 
stands alone thus far, and there may be others if this is allowed to continue to exist, which is one thing that makes it extraordinarily. The primary purpose of these laws has really not been about treatment, although that's been sometimes talked about. But really, in reality, it's about incapacitation and prevention, that is, from committing future uh, crimes of sexual violence, effectively as if they were in prison. There is uh, uh, not really a person by his very nature who is driven to commit crimes of the most violent sort. Oftentimes, against multiple, multiple victims, and I think that this notion has really been what's at the heart of causing all of the public sure about it. And they use words that really are deliberately inflammatory, such as predator, sexual predator, outright discrimination in, in the past, such as race, or gender, or sexual orientation, or disability, and other forms of law. And yet, uh, sex offenders most frequently are not. So, there's a matter of, uh, to be acknowledged cognitively by people as well as politically recognized, there really has to be, so they can say, some groups that don't have rights. And that's the difference between virtual reference to this notion of outsider groups. So, this is a very serious thing that we're talking about here that has great implications. I should say great, that's a great good, but really bad uh, implications of the traditional liberty and security balance. Literally, of all, of all people in America, that transitions from this notion of criminal justice by reason of the matter of personal presence. And also, it all sort of depends on how much risk, as they would say, unfortunately. And he was being tried for civil commitment in his case. Three experts that testified in trial said that in view of his age, three backward accounts. So the jury came back and surprised the short order of time of announcing that they found. He said, Well, hold on, before you go, let me just try to find out why you did this in light of the fact that everybody in here was agree with this guy had no higher than a 1% chance for reoffense. And the foreman of the jury told the judge, We were talking about that. But we decided relatively quickly that that Caldwell well, 1% may in general seem to be thought uh, that was unacceptable. Well, I, I think what we kind of come to in this country because of reasoning like that, which is really fear-based, it isn't really based on any kind of rational uh, judgment of vote. But that is not the way I don't believe that American justice should ever be run. And I feel very sorry for that man. And in fact, I'm frankly pretty much very close to a single I was committed. And uh, so I think what can you say that age again? Yes, I was committed at age 62, I think. Okay. And I'm 70, and I'm 71 now. Now, and as you can see, that's nine years. And frankly, I'm not showing any signs of being anywhere near done with this program, which is another thing that it's a travesty to call this a treatment program. It's just simply a containment or a confinement program with a little bit of treatment dollars across the top kind of help disguise what it really is all about. Uh, let's see, uh, I'm on a writer who has been researching this subject a great deal. Her name is Hudson. And she, as she puts it, the demand for safety when it comes to sexuality matters is insatiable. So that is to say, there's no You could literally have anybody who just might be loosely rubbered to have some completely unquantifiable but microscopic level, not just at 1%, but 
but maybe a lot more honor than one percent. And if you could actually quantify it at that level, but of course, you, so that would say that would be. Now, let me move along here. Because there's this history of, let's just call it fear and loathing uh, perverts, let's use a word like that, I, I feel it's sometimes appropriate to be a little bit inflammatory about these things simply to remind people that that's really uh, something that's really happening in their minds, even when they're not conscious of it. That is to say, there is this effect, rather, of unconsciously departing from rationality and getting simply into the feeling. So we have this point, but let's stop and talk about this development thing. I want to say that most recently, since the 1980s, there have been authors that have claimed that if you, this is how far this goes, for instance, from having ever been sexually don't have to remember that to know that it occurred. And the famous quote from one of the authors who writes both about that or did for many years there. And she said, and I might hasten to add that what she was pointing to and others besides her were pointing to at the time, and still in this very day sometimes, are things as trivial and, and completely disconnected as things of uh, neglect of one's or as having asthma, passive use, which of course they're not. But uh, in any event, uh, this, this kind of illustrates the kind of departure from rationality that you see people engaging in when fear. So there was a, uh, she in fact was treating uh, offenders for many years in New York State, sex Sometimes with like attraction support, take someone memorably, she said, show me a heterosexual. Instead, what we always do is just the hiding in teams, we circle the wagon, so to speak, and project that danger outward as if they're hovering in the shadows. But indeed, it is largely there. About the uh, upper obviously. You have one. You can continue. You can call, don't you have to call back? Yes, I was fine. Call Cyrus the professor. Because <laughs> that guy, he, he just knows. The, I don't. I want to ask him, I want him to talk. So the reason why you're not hearing me ask questions is I want to give every one of these guys the opportunity to speak and share what they feel led to share and without interruption. But I do have questions for him, but I'm going to let him talk until it's time. This, so the hoodie I'm wearing, and you can't see it because I'm, this is just going to be podcast only, but this is a fundraiser, and of course, I'm going to shoot a video for this here in a little bit, but I wanted to share some things until he calls. When the MSOP, which is Minnesota Sex Offender Program, was first developed, lawmakers promised that it would make our community safer. 30 years later, research shows, and this is real research, because I've shared this on the other broadcast I've done. Research shows that the program has done nothing to protect our women, children, or vulnerable loved ones. If anything, it's gotten worse. Anyway, there's more to this. Hello. This calls are subject to monitor and may be recorded. Your call will now be selected. Thank you for using email. Welcome back, Cyrus. And we were just talking about dangerous being outside of the very place where you occur, unfortunately which is family household, instead thinking that there's some mythical creatures out there and we can call them by any names, but the one I'd like to use right now would be one that really has pervaded this thing after it reappeared 
time and time again, despite all sorts of professional and scientific games to squelch it, because it really is purely uh, inflammatory in intent as well as effect. And that's the terms. So, what I really want to do is step back in history now and give you a thumbnail sketch of how the 1885, no less, a fellow by the name of, this is his last name, Graf, this is an uh, Austrian psychiatrist that he had an enormous set of repellent revulsive disgust for any bitters of sexuality that were done was it became uh, kind of an actual hop, skip, and a jump for people to start using that as a turnaround term to refer to people who actually simply had some kind of deviation from the average of uh, this proceeded literally on a completely subjective, a reactive basis, and he literally found something really horribly scaling and uh, over the top work to say about anyone who had anything other than that. So that was where this all really got started. It was a period whereby after about maybe this turn of the century in the 1900s, this was. Many countries started to pass laws that allowed uh, uh, for uh, confinement of people who literally had anything that was not considered of that normal nature, uh, including just plain old homosexuals. Today, we would regard that as completely over the top, but it certainly was the style of time. Yeah, we basically went on like that, but Progressively, a little bit diminishing interest in that. It's sort of like significance that was no longer the reason for uh, a range of passage of the laws until we got to the mid and late 1930s. And during that time, you may recall, uh, personally, of course, but hearing about the Depression, and that wasn't just the United States, by the way, it was actually worldwide, certainly throughout all the Western world, in Europe as well, where it actually started first, by the way, in the 1920s. Down to town in America, state, even if necessary, looking for work because they couldn't find anywhere they were. Where they were probably called hobos, you may call it, have you heard that term? Yeah. And they truly did ride the rails and hitchhike, et cetera, et cetera. But they became the subject of a great deal of suspicion by people who didn't like their presence, thought that because of their impoverishment, they might attempt to commit crimes having to do with theft and that sort of thing. And ultimately, this brought down when uh, a certain number of sex crimes would happen in a given city, they would probably turn to all the hobos as the probable suspects, whether they were or not. So this ultimately created that same kind of fear of the other, the people who were like outside of our communities, even though they were physically present in them. And the upshot was that uh, almost all states at that time started to pass legislation that literally said that if you commit sex crimes of this type or that type, you will be eligible not only for prison sentence, but also for sexual uh, better commitment on our civil laws. So that's really where that whole thing started back in the late 1930s. Minnesota, for instance, had one about 30 states at all at the think of it had those kind of laws. Uh, Minnesota, in fact, literally had a had about 50 guys under lock and key for that, even though their crimes 
were relatively minor by those kind of standards. I recall reading about some literally were just simply occasional exhibitions. And uh, although that's not certainly not something to be lauded, but the cosmic scale of sex crimes that probably doesn't rate quite as high as others. And yet these fellows would be regularly locked up as if they this is this went on for some time into about the mid nineteen fifties, at which time once again the excitement about all this that rather died aside. And uh, that meant that laws were not only not being passed anymore on that basis, but in fact, uh, many of the states that had them were beginning to ruin the day they had. Steve had one up in about this use of civil commitment. It was possible to take somebody to keep these guys put up indefinitely. And by the way, in those laws, just like today, almost none of them were released. They literally spent the rest of their lives and died. In any event, so about by the time we reached the late 1960s, the trend turned around the other way, and one by one, the states that passed these laws, almost all of them, except for Minnesota and a few others, I think all of them were six that retained them, but the rest let them go um, and repealed the laws. Um, now, that, that brings us up now to the present time, starting basically in the uh, late 1980s, when in a few states, some really extraordinary inflammatory crimes that hit the front line, headline, uh, literally caught the public's interest and became, became almost immediately the subject of interest by people whose job it is, and by the way, these people really exist, uh, to try to talk to the public about various things in order to gain some kind of traction for a legislative movement. And sometimes that's because they honestly feel the movement is necessary, but other times it's just as common uh, by the people who do this for a living that uh, it's all rather just a matter of the smoke and beer, the appearances, the ability to exaggerate dangers and the like uh, and make everything seem more extreme than it really is. So uh, this process began in rural such that in 1990, the state of Washington created the first of these new generation of sex offender commitment laws. And that was followed in fairly quick order over the next seven or eight years or so by about another 15 states. And ultimately, the total now has come to 20, although I don't think there's been a state that's actually enacted it since New York, and that was in 2006, as I recall. So uh, you can really eventually sort of like petered out, yet probably won't get any states on board. And the reasoning is because that the other states have seen this for what it is, really quite a boondoggle that costs a great deal of money every year in the cost, uh, which is another whole discussion all by itself. But the research that's looked into this has really discovered that, that despite what you do or whether you go commit these guys, whether you just treat them with or without commitment somewhere else, maybe for instance, Really, neither the treatment nor especially not the commitment makes a difference on sexual offending when it comes to the rate of sexual offenses in any given state. It didn't get lowered one bit I cut out to these laws. And once more, the uh, people that get committed, there have been a number of states that have actually let out a significant percentage of those that they committed, or at least they did for a while. 
eventually that became politically unpopular, but simply once again, by people beating the town down grounds of fear and loathing, but not having any rational basis of science, but completely contrary to it. So they literally forced the legislators to, to pass laws that, that bar people from getting out in those cases. But while they were letting them out, in the case of Florida, for instance, it's a classic example of this. They, they let out, I think it was something like 60 guys, I believe it was, and literally not one of them committed another sex crime. Now, these guys were guys that had completely out of self-control, maverick maniacs, if ever there were any, so that the accusation went. Yet, when they walked out the doors, they didn't commit any sex crimes. Those who get put in commitment facilities by Zelvin Grunin are not of that character. And we are not lathering maniacs, and we are not out of self-control. In fact, actually, those people who know anything about sexual offending will tell you that it is, among all crimes, probably the, in fact, no probably about it, it, it is the rated crime, should I, shouldn't I, that sort of thing, literally taking but sometimes even more than a year to debate whether or not to commit a given uh, projected sex crime and so on. Thanks about So, ultimately, there goes the notion of this thing being a sort of spontaneous uh, impulse that suddenly cannot be denied. It must be obeyed as if someone were a trance or something. That's just such total mystical fiction. It really isn't worth really. Hold, wait a second. Anymore. Net, uh, you, this brings up something that I want to ask you about yeah. though, because I know that there's a difference, not all sex offenders are sex addicts. And now a sex addict though, or a chem sex addict, like in my case, that pool, I mean, it like with any addiction, I think anyone out there that's ever suffered with addiction can relate to whatever that addiction is. You almost feel like you're being pulled to it like a magnet, and it does feel like it's out of the person's control. Can you speak to the difference between, if there is a way to do this, the difference between a sex addict and a sex offender from your point of view? Yeah. And I have to tell you, and I hope this doesn't run contrary to what your experience seems to tell you, um, but... The notion of sex addiction is not parallel to the notion of chemical dependence. So that literally, in most cases, by the time it really takes hold of my heart, it's really a physical dependency, obviously. What sexual addiction really amounts to is the drive, if you will, a sense of uh, uh, such a strong attraction to doing something that they are aware is not allowed by the law, such that they feel that they're literally drawn to it almost irresistible. It is, a, it is a resistible thing. And what it usually requires is a relatively brief and, and not terribly psychological therapy that's more in the nature of counseling and, and group processing, and, and which also about group counseling when you think about it, uh, to essentially bring that up to some degree of uh, sense of controllability, self-controllability. You have one minute remaining. As I say, never say never, because there's always people that basically defy not only the odds, but the <laughs> ability to describe it, you know, their experience in terms of frameworks of some kind of science. 
Well, generally speaking, that's the truth. Now, there are, quite frankly, among us here in this facility, some fellows who are literally of the stride book people that really feel very strongly about wanting to have sex, and frankly, a number of them are homosexual, very clearly, and uh, they literally slip about <laughs> trying to find opportunities to do that very thing. But I think the truth is that probably both psychologists would not call that an addiction. That's just something that's very personally important to them on an emotional level, what it really comes down to. And I know that may sound like it's splitting hairs from a standpoint of actual conduct. But really the truth is that when there's disincentive that is strong. Thank you for using TTL. Matt. Jim Tan Laundry. He'll call back, I'm pretty sure. He said something that I want to address. Oh, I know what it was. We have people that identify sexually with cats now. In other words, they see themselves as a cat and their sexuality is... I don't know if this was a joke, but I saw something about a couch. Two. Human sexuality is a weird thing. It is weird. It's complicated. It's not one size fits all. Forgive the pun. It's so freaking complicated. And I'm... And the things that make us attracted to or do the things that we want to do or the desires that we have... It's complicated, and there's a reason. I would like to get into the reason why somebody would be attracted to a minor. Like, I don't understand it, but there's got to be a psychological reason. Hello. This is a call for a subject to monitor and make Not that I'm justified. Your call will now be connected. Thank you for using PTL. Go ahead, sir. Based on the fact that there was a fair amount of response, based on the fact that early penalties for sex offenses, certainly all penalties on a sex crime, you would listen to that and you'd say, oh my God, you know, I'm not doing that. <laughs> That's what you're saying. So I, I don't think that it accounts for anywhere here. That kind of for you on that question. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, thank you very much yeah. for that answer. Yeah. Let's see. I was kind of going to gather my thoughts. Oh, here. Uh, I also wanted to talk about how this almost like hysterical sex crime fear that was going on from the mid-80s on forward really took quite a social toll throughout society in general. There were, for instance, just a spectacular number of accusations that erupted around the country having to do with uh, daycare centers and all things. Really tiny. A cookie-cutter kind of accusation to talk about things like Something about some kind of a satanic cult, I guess was the phrase. That's right. In any event, really, uh, when all the smoke and dust cleared from the scene and all the facts were down, what emerged is that literally what had happened was that somebody somewhere had gotten hysterical, put either their child or other people's children, if they were some official somewhere, through a real heat grinder series of interrogations until the children told them what they wanted to hear. And Children, although they are mostly naive, 
once they are put through such a kind of interrogation, it sounds like they look like they really do understand before too long what's being asked of them and realizing that they're probably not going to be left to themselves until they turn the ghost on the stake they simply just say, oh, yeah, I'm sure it happened when it happened. Yeah, so that accounts for a lot. Counsel, by the way, for why you would expect that if some child were actually to be recounting some show of that kind of thing, you would expect all sorts of uh, part of the child making that kind of accusation. From my standpoint, I remember vividly every detail of what happened to me. It's never escaped me. I can't remember what I did yesterday, but the day I was molested the first time and every time after, I remember in detail. So okay. I support what you're saying. Right. Yeah. Yeah, the thing about it is, is that, as I was saying, I've seen many of these and interviews really uh, eerie to the point of being, I think, self-evidently doubtful because you would hear them carry on with these absolutely nonchalant statements that were recounting of supposedly the most horrific actions having been done to them. It's not something that you would ever expect in human experience to have somebody do that. Like I say, it would really be quite an emotional, wrenching thing to have to say those things. But oftentimes, yeah, oftentimes that's just not there. And that should be a tell, quite frankly. But for the longest time, it wasn't regarded as a tell because people were in such a, a mode that I call the will to by the concept of something of the point where just have a, an undying desire to believe that that's what happened, then you just persist. Like all mitigations contrary. Yeah. In any event, I, I'm sorry for your experience, by the way. Um, I'm sure it wasn't. There's just with all this stuff, it turned out in the end, was not only recklessly done, and, and in most cases, really was a sort of a witch hunt without witches, if you will. Just people thinking that crimes happen on an assembly line basis when, in fact, no such assembly line happened. And maybe there was a sex crime that sort of like actually did happen. It may be, say, for instance, a daycare center somewhere. But when all was done, it was simply one random off the top employee who basically did something off the top crazy to some portable shot, assembly line everywhere. Yeah. So, so what that sort of turned out to be was something that got hijacked, if you will, by forces that really wanted to use that kind of stuff as an illustration of why uh, not just sex crime should be reined in more tightly, uh, but really so that everything else about American society that involves sex should actually be equally tightly restricted. That's it became the grist, if you will, of conservative movements that were literally trying to take American society I would say back, but I think there are imaginings of what American society used to be like in the late 1800s and even earlier than that were not even correct. I know my history fairly well. It, it, it certainly uh, was, not, was not the case. They were simply creating this image of what supposedly America was like at some time in the past, and then simply saying everybody should jump back to this, which is to say to go to whatever we are navigating as a new mode of acceptable conduct in, in American society that's much more restricted than it was before uh, because we're trying to avoid these 
Brown Trump. Yeah, and by the way, there's something that basically could be said in this term, in the, the note that I wrote out, it's sort of like a paraphrase, almost like quote, affective, emotional affect, in other words, conventions of sexuality, in particular, sexual shame, stigma, fear, disgust, they enforce and reinforce this regulatory system and are therefore political. In its wake, this panic of moral panics, if you want to call it that, legitimizes and enhances the power to fostering the illusion of a singular public. In other words, all mobilized in lockstep, if you will, in support of so-called traditional values, whether in fact actually they were traditional or not. So there you have it. I guess maybe I won't probably beat the drum any longer about the notion of moral panics, but it literally is something that, that time and time again has been used to try to both create the current situation, not only regarding sex offender commitment, but on a much broader level to justify the whole notion of sex offender registration, by the way, and of all sorts of restrictions on people who have had mass sex offenses, whether they were on probation or whether they were in prison and afterwards encountered these restrictions. And it's, and it's very broad. I mean, that in all gender, there are probably about 7,000, maybe even a couple hundred less than that, of people locked up right now in sex offenders' civil commitment facilities. I don't think that fact, because it's so few comparatively, should be taken lightly. In fact, actually, I think because of the enormity of depriving people of their freedom for the rest of life just because somebody thinks that they might someday commit a crime is about as horrendous as it gets. Yep. I agree. By the same token, by the, by the, yeah, on the other side of the coin, when you look at literally, I think it's a million and a half now, people who are literally under some form of sex offender registration by law because of past sex crimes that they've committed at some point in their life, even a long, long time By the way, it includes uh, people who committed sex crimes when they were juveniles. So, I mean, how we got to the million and a half thing. A surprising percentage of sex crimes are actually committed by people who are 18. Unless my memory sometimes goes to the helpful lunch right now. But you know what I'm talking about. There, there's various chemicals that float around. The are you talking about testosterone? I'm sorry? Are, are you saying testosterone? There's, there's obviously these days uh, various antagonists to testosterone which have been sort of enlisted in the notion that that would somehow uh, prevent sex crimes by people who seem to, by the records, already be predisposed to do them. But that's also a false reality, too. That doesn't really exist. It's a, a significant problem because it turns out that taking what they're called testosterone agonists, now that I've got the name back in my mind. You have one minute yeah. remaining. Just kidding. Because this is a short one. It does this periodically. That's something else. But in any event, let me just finish up about that this topic by saying that uh, these uh, testosterone agonists have really very serious physical side effects, including most probably, worst of all, at any age. And another set of things has to do with the impacts on your liver and your kidneys, and they're very bad for those as well. 
So this time, uh, we're going, if you want to continue, uh, because let's do one more. I'm going to have a little longer break. I'm sorry. Let's do one more. Okay. But can you give me about five minutes this time? I have to take a break for physical reasons. Yes, sir. I understand. I can talk uh, for five minutes. All right, Okay, hold right. that tight and I'll be back. Yes, Thank sir. You. See you in a second. So much information. That's not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing at all. I wonder, I want to get back to this thing, these facts, this fact sheet, but I just wonder how many people actually give a crap. I keep thinking about the Bible, how it talks about at the end of days and whether this is the end of days or not is up to that's i don't know <laughs> it's up to god I mean, yeah there's you know, the signs are everywhere but i'm pretty sure over the history of human the human species that they've had these scares or felt like this was the end several different times of course it does feel like we're going there but my point that it says in the end of days, people will be lovers of themselves and selfish and yada. And I wonder, like, how many people actually recognize the threat that this is to them? And it's a sneaky one. Now, from my understanding, Cyrus... I want him to say it. I don't want to be the one to say it. And the reason why is because I don't want, if I misheard something he told me, I don't want to, like I, for instance, thought it was 75 or 76. And he's 71. So if I misheard something, I don't want to say it as fact. But seriously, what's happening there is awful. And if you haven't heard the episode, Why You Need to Care, about civil commitment please listen to it or watch it because in that episode i read the messages and i have more i've had more messages since i did that broadcast about what's happening in the texas facility it's a nightmare and there's a lot of innocent people that are there there's guilty people too there's also guilty people that serve their time. Some of the guilty people were minors when they committed their offense. They committed with another minor, but for whatever reason, it's considered sex offense. And then all that's another thing that's very interesting to me is that, and listen, like I don't, the people that molested me, I can't say are sex offenders. I can't say that. What and I wonder. What's the difference between the two? Does that any time that somebody rapes somebody else, does that make them a sex offender or is it an incident? Do you factor in them being up on drugs or whatever else? Is that factor in? Does it factor in? He was talking about testosterone. Of course, it reminds me now of James Cameron, the guy that wrote, he came, he was the original Terminator director, right? And then Avatar. There's an Avatar 5, I just, like Avatar 1, and then it went from 1 to 5. How'd that happen? Did I miss something? Anyway, that's off track. But he was, he's been in the news saying that testosterone is poison. 
Do you know what happens when your body's low on testosterone? Everything starts to shut down. It's not just your willy doesn't want to work. Like low testosterone is not good for you. But then, of course, elevated testosterone is not good for you either. But we were designed and created to have testosterone for a reason. So it's interesting that he's talking about this. I I remember taking steroids when I was young. Of course, I took I would have taken anything back then. But I did so much damage to my body, steroids, stimulants, all of it. But I remember being on steroids, but taking testosterone. First of all, again, I was a chem sex addict too. So like I was feeding a demon and uh, the testosterone, (laughs) it didn't help. But again, it was elevated. It was more than what was natural. But my mind was already wired for destruction. And I just wonder what I was saying before the break is that I wonder if what causes this to happen? What causes an adult to be attracted to minors that they would do that? Like, how can you look at a minor and go, they're sexy? And I think, how does that happen? I can't understand it. But I also like, you know, women that are developed. I don't, yeah, there's just so much about this I don't understand. But at the same time, again, I don't understand that. But I also don't understand aligning my sexuality with a cat or some of the other weird things that I'm sure were just for attention. But I don't understand like a gender. I don't understand non-binary. I don't understand a lot of the new sexualities. I barely understand my own. Because like I hate, that's why I hate labels so much. And yes, I know I'm the world's bear. But know what the world's bear means. It doesn't. It's not as egocentric as it sounds. It's a mindset and it's about other people and not me. Even though I'm calling myself the world's mayor. You don't have to believe that, but it's true. And those that were there the day that the name was given to me will know all about it. So I want to read this really quick. But after almost 30 years, this is what I was reading before he called. Research shows that the program has done nothing to protect our women, children, or vulnerable loved ones. Eric Genos, I think is his name, is the former president and dean of Mitchell Hamlin School of Law, has said, do not spend money on these programs. Figure out other ways of using our resources to fight sexual violence. Here's something for you. There are other sexual programs... There are other programs besides MSOP that are effective in preventing sexual violence. Stop it now. PAVSVA, which is P-A-V-S-A. And then there's MNCASA. There's more. 
but they are struggling financially because lawmakers insist on spending over $100 million every year on MSOP, even though they know it doesn't work. I wonder if it's money laundering. Never mind, that's a whole other broadcast. You can be part of the solution. Oh, okay. So these hoodies that are for sale, the 100% of the profits from this hoodie will go towards educating the public concerning the issue, as well as supporting the programs that protect our communities from sexual violence. To order your Stop Sexual Violence hoodie, click on the link below. There's no link yet. Hold on. Contact at embroideringdad.com. That's how you order them. Hold on. Hello. Calls are subject to monitor and may be recorded. Your call will now be selected. Thank you for using GTL. Oh, hello, sir. Oh, no. Not at all. I've just been sitting here. Oh, no, mine would go to voicemail. Yes, sir. Oh, I know. I know you're just scratching the surface. But what I would like to do for the sake of the listening audience is have you come back because this is such heavy and detailed information. And it's it's going to be over an hour. So let's we should do it again because digesting this alone is going to be a lot for people. So go ahead and share what else you need to share. And of course, you're welcome back, Cyrus. I love talking to you. So you're welcome back anytime. Awesome. Thank you very much. And uh, I'll try to deserve it. Um, <laughs> in any event. So I wanted to say something that I had not said before, but I think it's really very vital and important to show you how much this whole thing was politically twisted. At the time when they were trying to make arguments for these new laws, everything from branching up the penalties right up to the sex offender registration and the commitments, uh, of course, the sex offenders, all of it was by people made arguments. There were supposedly, well, it was supposedly a, a massive recidivism percent, uh, percentage by sex offenders as compared to other crimes. There was a fellow, by the way, Picked it all off as an article in Popular Psychology, not exactly a peer-reviewed journal, in 1986. Oh, the last one, Mr. Hugh Longo, closed with that sex offender recidivism was horribly at 80 percent or higher, and recidivism, and that that really it was not true even remotely. In fact, actually, all studies of recidivism, even the ones a tiny fraction of that, there were some that basically had initially later by a fellow by the name of Carl Hansen out of Canada in studies in which he claimed that the average rate of recidivism. But his rate of 17% was derived from people who literally have been in prison way back in the 70s under the very same catch and release provisions that I was talking about, yet thus felt really quite powerful to go ahead and reinvent it consequences, so to speak, like that. And ever since these new penalties have been increased so dramatically, that's gone away almost wholesale, such that in the last 20 years, there's been no study that's been peer-reviewed that's come up with an average recidivism rate. Now, it's the average, including people who have recidivated already, uh, yeah. higher than about 3.5%. 
and most of it is far less than that. So what that means is that if you compare that to other crimes, in fact, actually, sex offending is the lowest, literally the lowest uh, recidivism rate of any crime. And it's just a little bit lower than first-degree murders, which uh, aside from the ones that are heat of passion murders, the kind of murders that are essentially committed by people who get paid to commit murders, but otherwise than that is, is a very low rate itself. But so yeah, it's the the myth of completely insane recidivism is myth, just pure and simple. And it's the reason that's important is because when the U.S. Supreme Court made its decision of authorizing these four justices against in the middle justice, who essentially lead toward the, the, the four, so it has to allow that. And, and that's how that decision happened. But that was Justice Kennedy, and Justice Kennedy said something that really caught everybody's eyes. He said, yeah, yeah, yeah. so we have to do something. He said, that's something he went with it. But she was literally flippantized by that complete set of lies about 80%. It's just appalling what people will say. Anyway, I did, by the way, Congress did the very same thing a number of times subsequently. Uh, um, and I won't get you into all that. Anyway, yeah, there, there were people said really terrible things about not only recidivism, but supposedly about uh, complete lack of self-control and everything. And, and all that was later utterly debunked. There is an outfit called Full uh, Health America. And this is an organization of psychiatrists who basically feel very strongly that psychiatry and notions of mental health should not be misused for purposes of just creating political game by people who literally want to be re-elected in office or elected for the first time by pounding on deaths and saying, yeah, I'm about sex offenders. Oh, yeah. So this organization, Mental Health America, or MHA for short, um, believes that these laws don't constitute sound health policy, and the laws focus on punishment rather than treatment and deal with people who often don't have any treatable mental illness. And that uh, goal is to increase stigma and distorts the safety of other persons in mental health facilities and to the extent that they're combined with people who are in facilities for allegedly having some problem with controlling their sexual actions. Yeah, divert resources, most importantly, from mental health care and inappropriately burden the mental health system with a criminal justice function for which it's not funded or equipped. Yeah. There currently is a great deal of research going on about this, by the way. And that research isn't really into one whether that's true. In fact, the research is all been one that for a very long time saying, yes, indeed, that is very true. That, that literally, if you really want to confine people, you should be using the criminal justice system. If only because it's vastly cheaper than to, which of course has to be staffed by psychologists. Therefore, it gets very expensive, very And, uh, you know, really, the mental health community ought to be left out of this debate about what to do about sex offenders and what their position is. It's MHA organization. And I couldn't agree more. Um, and they advance several uh, postulates for that, so several propositions. Some they often don't have any treatable mental illness whatsoever. That people who are committed as sex offenders are being confined for a lengthy period without any regular appropriate review of whether they should be. And that once they're confined as a sexual so-called predator, it's difficult politically. The will isn't there, and so the 
manufacturers have only been stacked against release. And that is, by the way, very true in the states. So we're having quite a problem in that regard here. But all states make the release of, of sexual predators much more, shall we say, onerous uh, than ordinary civil commitment in ways that really demonstrate and, and exacerbate, really, the punitive uh, nature. So basically, their point is that sexual predator legislation, as it's called, is criminal justice legislation. And that uh, being applied against people who have already been convicted and served a term of imprisonment. And therefore, it's unfair to just don't want to sexually punish them a second. Yeah, especially because when you tried them for the crime in the first place, if they tried to make a defense of being mentally ill and therefore not responsible for the crime, that would get brushed aside. And you'd say, well, you certainly did know what you were doing. You had thorough control of your actions. And now comes the commitment time and say, wait a we can't let you go because you don't have control of your actions. Wow. <laughs> Talk about inconsistency. Where in the meantime, they lost control of their actions, but they had a control of the time of crime. Wow. <laughs> That's pretty ironic. Absolutely. And it's frightening that these psychiatrists have so much power when they're practicing medicine. Like, it, it's not, it's a practice. They don't have it down. There's no exact science to these diagnoses and no. making, these making these determinations is dangerous. That you're giving them the power of God, basically, and that's a problem, especially yeah, if you know it, the field it, of psychiatry. It's not funny to say this, but one one uh, person who was writing in the field that was advocating for sex women in the early years literally said that he said, he said because I'm a psychiatrist, I have this sense of power of God over these people. Oof. It was appalling. I must say, but I guess I couldn't agree with you more. I guess. One, my take on that is, is that it certainly applies to the notion of diagnosis because the entire Bible of the psychiatric profession, known as the DSM or the Diagnostic Statistical Manual, which now, by the way, is in its upteenth version, they actually number them. And the last numbered version was five, but because they have these interstitial versions that are called transitional versions, it comes to more than that. And now they're dealing with a five transitional on the way to the sixth version. So anyway, this stuff is regularly getting revised from year to year. And the importance of that is that it certainly does back up what you said about none of this stuff is written in stone. It gets changed oftentimes in response to science, but just as often, frankly, in response to political leanings. And these political leanings are not just political leanings being brought to bear from outside profession but literally are sometimes brought by gatherings of all that within the psychiatric profession who just basically decide that they would like to take psychiatry when it comes to sexual offending in one direction or another. And so one of the reasons why there was positive reform about what it would take to be diagnosed as uh, smarter. And by the way, there's every reason in the world to make an argument that that's just complete bunk itself. But the reason why they wouldn't reform it was because this grouping uh, of psychiatrists that were close to power structure of the American Psychiatric Association decided that they just didn't want to do a finished as. The definition, by the way, says that you could be found to be suffering thoughtful disorder if you 
simply had a crime against a child, a sex crime. Right. There doesn't have to be any connection to any psychological malady or symptoms. You just committed a crime. Mm-hmm. The crime automatically supposedly constitutes this, this, uh, this psychological disorder. Anybody who knows the deal knows that's not how it's done. <laughs> so that was truly appalling for them to do that. And, uh, and it slipped in because uh, of the trusting editors who actually took an update that uh, what had been submitted was valid. And so they literally put it in there before they realized that by doing so, they were literally inadvertently endorsing this. So it's a best, frankly, when it comes to diagnosis. But the interesting thing about the, uh, I'm not curious, I'm sorry, the adverse decision that occurred to the is that it actually requires three things. Only one is the diagnosis. The only two I'll get to real quickly here. One other one is that basically there has to be a lack of control. Okay. That is, we talked about this already. And that's probably the one for which there is no way to determine whether or not somebody is truly in or outside of their self-control unless from their internal point of view, subjectively, Tell you, listen, I'm totally out of control. Probably have very good reason to take their word for it. But short of that, you can't simply say from the outside, especially about somebody who says, No, I'm in perfect control. And you say, Oh, no, you're not. And I'll tell you why you're not. You have one minute remaining. But that doesn't apply psychiatrically or psychologically. Anyway, so that's the other one. Yeah, the other one, the other third prong, of course, is that there has to be a high, much higher than average likelihood of recidivism let this guy go. Uh, and that, by the way, is subject to a lot of risk assessment instruments and evaluations, and we can talk about that maybe next time. I look forward so to that. Back about, let that go there. Perfect. Cyrus, what's your last name? Glad, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. And back to talk anytime, I'm sure I'll call you back, and we'll probably reach it again soon. How's that sound? I look forward to it, man. God bless you, and I look forward to talking to you again. Okay, thanks for here, Josh. Well, all right, have a good day. You too, bye-bye. Bye. Everyone, that is a, uh, that's a lot. There's so much more. When I was talking about, does anyone care? Will anyone care? I, what I'm actually asking is what piece of information is it going to take to make people on the outside care about this? Because their tax dollars going to waste, people don't care because we have senseless wars. But we have billions of dollars to give to other countries, but we don't take care of our own people in this country. And I know there's a reason for that, and it's not a good reason, but there's a reason for it. There's a reason for all of this. There's a reason why this is being ignored. There's a reason why they want these people to go away. It's I care about this a lot. and maybe it's because I've gotten to know family members or not, not all, but a lot of them. I've had multiple calls with some of the men that have been locked up. I read the blogs that are written. Preacher's wife, prime example. We just released another one today. They're human beings. There's monsters prowling everywhere there's monsters sitting next to you at the bar there's monsters in your school 
There's monsters on the police force. There's monsters in the government. There's monsters in your church. There's monsters that are your next door neighbor. There's probably monsters in your own home. So just crazy. There's so many injustices in the world. There's men. I think they're finally starting to let people out. But there's guys that have been locked up for and men and women have been locked up for 10 plus years for a little bit of pot. And depending on the state that they're in. It's just this one, just the civil commitment stuff. It's just the it's a nightmare. And I look at it from I, I can point at all the stuff that I've said before, and it, it, there's really no need to repeat it. But just breaking it down to the fact that. Some of these people were thrown in there in these shadow prisons under civil commitment based off of hearsay, based off of a false report. And then let's just say that the report was somewhat accurate. It's people that have served their time and were let out and released freedom, didn't do anything wrong. You heard him say, and I've said this on the other broadcast, and it's actually proven that sex offenders have, and serial, not serial killers, sex offenders, and I think he said murder, but sex offenders, the recidivism rate, <laughs> however you say that, in other words, the repeat offender, is the smallest of all repeat offenders. And in other words, people typically don't do it again. Why is that? I don't know what made him do it in the first place. This is a complicated issue. It's not, you can't fit it into a box and just go, oh, this is pretty. Okay, this is how it is. And that's that. It doesn't work that way, even though that's obviously what's happening is they are being put in a box and throwing away the key. And you're never getting out. But life's not that simple. This is not a, a case of, I'm on video, I blew his brains out. Okay, I deserve to be punished for that. This is way complicated. And yet, we're giving psychiatrists. Let me tell you something about psychiatrists. I've dated a few. I don't know why the crazy guy would want to date psychiatrists, but that's what I did. There was a period where I was like, every everyone that I was dating was a therapist. And they're all batshit crazy. Every one of them. I've never met a normal therapist. Ever. I wanted to be a therapist. But I'm batshit crazy sometimes. And I'm guessing if I'm listening to people share their thoughts and their feelings and their darkest moments and the craziness that's going on in their head, I would probably be a little bit more whacked out too. But there's not a single psychiatrist or therapist that I've dated that was not an alcoholic, didn't smoke, and didn't do drugs. Maybe one didn't do drugs. Two. Two out of the seven didn't do drugs. They hated their life. They were always stressed out. They immediately, and they exercised, they worked out, but that wasn't enough. They needed more. And these are the people that are making decisions that get people locked up for the rest of their life with no chance of getting out, 
all on what? Their opinion. Opinions. <laughs> it could even be their medical opinion. But when you have a field of psychiatry that constantly changes its own rules and belief system, it's worse than the Catholic Church in this sense. The Catholic churches go in and change the Bible whenever they feel like it, or they change a law whenever they feel that they that it, they they can do, they should do it. They do it. They've been doing this forever, ever, forever. Like people walk around as Christians, not realizing that their faith has changed, or not their faith, but the religion has changed and been modified. Like over this since the beginning like forever this happens all the time at the turn of the century you may it's like every couple hundred years there's like a massive change in our faith or the christian faith why do you think there's so many different bibles so many different versions of christianity psychiatry is no different depending on who you were learning from in the field of psychiatry whatever discipline it's gonna be what you believe and what you teach and what you are putting into practice as you're practicing in your field. There are some psychiatrists that does not believe that borderline personality disorder is a thing. Some people don't believe that multiple personalities are real. Some people don't believe that disassociative disassociative identity disorder is a thing. But I'll tell you who does think it's a thing, the government. You know why I know? Because there are scientific studies on mind control. There are scientific studies in how you can purposely give somebody disassociative identity disorder. There's studies, real research, that has been around longer than I've been alive. mRNA technology, as some people, that's all over the news now. mRNA has been around for at least 40 years, at least How do I know? Because in those same very studies that talks about how you give someone DID, disassociative identity disorder, the same studies talk about mRNA technology for mind control. Don't even pretend that you don't think mind control is not a thing because they talk about it in the mainstream news all the time, and I know what I say about the news, but they tell people, they act like they've stopped doing it. It's kind of like weather warfare, like harp. <laughs> like they act like they stopped, but I don't know. Have you looked at the map today? And just for the heck of it, is December thirteenth. Have you seen the map today? How in the world is it that the entire United States is under threats of storms, massive, awful storms? where power outages, tornadoes, sleet storms, ice storms, tornadoes, all over the country, all in the same period of three to four days. And if you've seen the map, it's wild. It's wild. Anyway, there's so much more going on. But the fact is this, give anything that is, when we give somebody absolute authority, you better hope that it's God that doesn't have a bias, that truly wants the best for everyone, that gives a swift and fair punishment. But when you're giving somebody 
opinion, the power of God, you have a recipe for danger. Because even the stuff that I'm saying right now, or I've said on any of the other broadcasts, any of that stuff that I've said, if that made one of those therapists mad, and all of a sudden someone wants to make an accusation, even if there's no facts, and then all of a sudden I'm in front of this therapist and they're like, oh, you're the guy that's been talking smack about me, and like in the back of their head. They can do whatever they want. And then what's my defense? Oh, you have a bias against me because I made fun of you? No, that doesn't work. That's not that these people that are getting thrown in these shadow prisons don't even get that opportunity. That's what I'm saying. These therapists have the power of God. And how many of your doctors have been wrong? How many times has your doctor prescribed you the wrong medication? How many of your therapists? By the way, go read about the side effects of antidepressants that are given out like candy. Read about it. Read about how it changes your body, not just what they tell you on TV. Go read the actual studies of the side effects and understand that this that ain't, this ain't good for you. Some of the, this, these medications that are prescribed. The long-term effects of Ritalin and what's the Adderall, the antidepressants, the bipolar medications. Read about them. And you think that they're treating your mental health problem? <laughs> Not even close. But even with that said, let's just say that the antidepressant benefited you. Do you remember what it was like when you went to the psychiatrist for the first time to get prescribed the meds? The questions you asked, the medicine. Hey, let's try you on this. Let's try you on that and see how you're doing for a couple of months. That's practicing medicine on you. I don't care what anyone says. That's what it is. I know the damage that was done to me because I was misdiagnosed with schizophrenia when I had disassociative identity disorder. The medication I was given made it worse, made me more manic, more crazy than I already was. It made me want to do drugs more. But the side effects go on and on. So the only point I'm trying to make is we're giving a lot of power to people that are, don't really know it all. Hell, they could be having a bad day and they look at that guy or the girl that's in trouble, and all of a sudden, they got an agenda that day. Maybe they got cut off in traffic. They're a little hungover. They're a little stressed out. It's been a bad day. Someone was mean to them. Someone hurt their feelings. And all of a sudden, they see this guy, this person that's been accused of something that may hit home for them. And I know they're professionals. They're supposed to be objectable, and they can remove themselves from that. But you know what? We're all human beings. We're all susceptible to our emotions. And to act like we're not is foolish. Because I promise you that you can tell me that you're so calm, cool, and collective, and you're in this meditative state all the time. But I promise you, I could get you to stand up and punch me in the face. I promise you, I could get you to assault me. We're, some are better at this than others, but I would suggest that the majority are a slave to their emotions in some 
shape or form. And this is no different for professionals, for psychiatrists, for doctors or anything else. And don't tell me that doctors are not susceptible to corruption. What do you think the last two and a half years has been? You want to talk about corruption? So all I'm getting at is this. I'm not defending the act of a sex offender. I'm not doing that. I'll never will. Would I forgive? Yeah, because I've forgiven the people that took advantage of me. I've forgiven the people that molested me. I've forgiven the people that abused me, including myself. There's, there's got to be a better way. There's got to be a better way, but what's happening right now is not right. We've given a lot of power to the wrong people. And it's time to get that power back. Because it's not just civil commitment. It's not just civil commitment. There is so many more injustices. But ironically, from what I can tell, they somehow all end up connecting back to the same place. I look forward to having Cyrus back on. Again, I want to give a shout out to everyone at MSOP and, and MSOP, your family, your loved ones, everyone in Texas and New Jersey. God bless you guys, Kansas. You're in our prayers. California, we're, you're in our prayers. And I would appreciate if you all checked out facebook.com slash end. M-S-O-P. And also to get these hoodies, I would just go to go contact at embroiderydad.com and just email them and let them know you want one of these hoodies. They come in pink too. Jessica, my wife, has one and my wife stands with you guys as well. And she didn't at first, by the way. She was a little freaked out, and I can understand why. I was freaked out, just because I didn't know how I was going to respond. I didn't know what I was going to meet, who I was going to meet, what I was going to be faced with, but I got to tell you, I, my heart goes out to all of you. Even the ones that actually were molesters and sex offenders, my heart goes out to you, because I don't believe you were born to be that. I don't believe that God created you to be any of those things. So something happened. Something happened and screwed you up or put, put you in a position where, for whatever reason, you made a choice that caused somebody else a lot of harm. And it's really easy to point at it and go, ah, it's sex offense. But it could be murder. There's, I think about the things that were said to me and the damage that did. Sometimes the verbal stuff was worse than the physical that happened. Anyway, I could keep talking about this forever and I'm just going to start to ramble. So I'm going to stop there. But if you're still listening, please keep these guys in your prayers. And if you have started to look into this and you're starting to realize the injustice that goes on and why I've been talking about this for the last year and why this matters to me, 
I'd be grateful for you guys to purchase one of these sweatshirts. The money goes all to them. All the profits go to help support their mission. They need to tear down these walls, these prisons. There's a better way. There's a better way to help rehabilitate. What they're doing is not it. Thank you for listening.